Welcome to episode 58 of Primary Care Update. I'm Dr. Mark A. Bell, a family physician and professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. I'm John Hickner, family physician and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Family Practice. I'm Henry Barry, a family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPoems. So in this podcast, we highlight POEMS, which stands for Patient-Oriented Evidence That Matters. If you want all the POEMS, subscribe to Essential Evidence, where you get a POEM daily plus a great primary care reference. Check it out at www.essentialevidenceplus.com. The opinions expressed on Primary Care Update are those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. In today's episode and in the next one, we're going to do something a little different. By special request from our friends at the Indiana Academy of Family Physicians, we're going to review 18 of our favorite COVID-19 papers, nine today and nine in the next episode. We're going to start with a few background studies, mainly about transmission and prevalence, and Henry is going to kick us off. Yeah, so in the past, we've seen a couple of studies using fancy laser technology that showed that just during normal speech, that respiratory droplets can travel up to seven and a half centimeters, but that the louder you speak, the more they travel. Well, this same team using the same fancy technology shows that when you speak loudly in a stagnant environment that's closed, that these respiratory droplets actually will linger in the air for eight to 14 minutes. So these kinds of in vitro experiments just demonstrate the potential for COVID transmission in closed spaces. And we need to be a little bit cautious in that these are uh, great studies that are done by a variety of engineers that are simulations, but they provide a theoretical framework. And in this case, though, we will see a little bit later that this theoretical framework actually probably holds up fairly well in the real world, too. John, any comments? Yes, there's no doubt that this virus is passed via respiratory droplets. We know that. What's a little less certain is about uh, transmission on hard surfaces. Even though the virus can live on hard surfaces, uh, so we worry about it. There really is not much empiric evidence of what percent of transmission occurs in that way. So hence, uh, face masks are, are really important preventive measure. Yeah, and there's some great videos online. If you go to the New England Journal of Medicine site, they have an article that has the video showing the difference between uh, droplet uh, spray and the distance that it's projected based on different levels of speech and also with and without a mask. It's worth Worth and watching. also with a cough or a sneeze, it may travel a couple of meters. So it really is um, uh, a fascinating area for study. So I have the next one, and this is a prevalence of antibodies uh, about 10 times higher than the reported case rate in the U.S. This was a CDC study, and it's ongoing. They have 10 areas in the U.S. where they're sampling. And what they did was they took serum specimens drawn by a commercial lab for another reason, like checking a cholesterol or an A1C, and they tested them for antibodies to SARS-CoV-2. The proportion testing positive was age and sex adjusted. And what they found was that the prevalence of antibodies, and this was back in mid-March to mid-May, ranged from 1% in San Francisco to about 7% in New York. When they compared that to the number of confirmed cases in those areas, the prevalences were 6 to 24 times greater than the prevalence of uh, re confirmed reported cases. Um, by now, you know, the, the continuing to do a data collection, prevalence is probably increasing. And uh, I just looked at their website. It's not published, but they are putting it on their website. 
And now in late June, uh, most sites were still reporting in the 3 to 8% range of prevalence. The exception was New York City, which actually had a 23% prevalence of positive antibodies. So uh, triple that, and you're actually at uh, herd immunity in New York City. Henry? You know, these kinds of studies are, are, are fun and you know, re- really represent some challenges for us, but really confirms that there's a lot of asymptomatic individuals. From a therapeutic perspective, we've heard a couple of small studies about using convalescent serum for patients who are critically ill. And they, in those cases, they've taken people who have had confirmed symptomatic COVID and then harvested their um, antibodies. Well, I just wonder if this represents a large pool from whom we can actually derive large amounts of convalescent serum for mass use. Yeah. The only thing is that I think that other studies have shown that the antibody response, the amount of antibody produced is roughly proportional to the degree of symptom severity. And so the people with the more severe symptoms, more symptomatic, producing more antibodies. So that may play into this as well. Uh, John? Let's move on to the next study and next two studies, in fact, which continue this theme of asymptomatic infection, and then we could have some more discussion. Uh, this particular narrative now reviews the or quantifies the proportion of people with COVID-19 infections who are asymptomatic at the time of testing. So these are people who were tested, were positive, but had no symptoms. This study includes 16 cohorts of COVID-19 positive individuals from a variety of countries, including Iceland, Italy, Greece, France, Japan, Argentina, the United States, and also the four ship outbreaks that we've all heard about. The percentage of people who tested positive, again, who had no symptoms at the time of testing, ranged from a low of 6.3% in a nursing home facility in King County, Washington, to highs of nearly 88% of occupants in a Boston homeless shelter, 88% on an obstetric service in New York City, and a full 96% of 3,146 inmates in state prison systems in Arkansas, North Carolina, and Ohio who were tested. Now, the three cohorts that came from representative population-based samples, on the other hand, suggest that the probable rate of asymptomatic infection is in the range of 40 to 45 percent. As we noted previously in a study of infector-infecting pairs in China, transmission from asymptomatic individuals may account for approximately 40 percent of cases. We're going to move on. Mark will present a study from Italy now that reaches a similar conclusion. Yeah, this was a really uh, interesting study and I think very important because it's much more representative than the population on a cruise ship, which tends to be older and wealthier and aircraft carriers who are young, uh, prisons who are younger, uh, maternity wards, again, younger. And when you do look at the data John just presented, you do see some association perhaps with age, older people more likely to be symptomatic. That fits with what we know younger people, kids, less likely to be symptomatic. So this was the Italian town of Vaux with a little apostrophe at the end of it. It's near Padova in northern Italy. And uh, it was one of the first towns affected by COVID-19 in Italy. And it was entirely locked down very early in the epidemic back in February. Researchers went in, they tested everyone they could find, 86% of the entire population in late February. They went back in early March to do that again, I uh, managed to find 72% to swab. In late February, 
2.6% of all samples were positive. What they found was that, again, 42% of the infected were asymptomatic at the time of testing and never became symptomatic. The time to clear the infection for those who were positive on the first survey and negative on the second ranged from 8 to 13 days. Average was about 9 days. The viral load was similar for symptomatic and asymptomatic individuals. And through contact tracing, they determined that asymptomatic individuals can transmit the infection. They did confirm that, and that's been confirmed in other studies as well. The lockdown reduced the effective reproduction number from 2.5, which is the figure that we've seen in other studies, down to 0.41. So this was good adherence with sort of quarantine, lockdown, isolation measures. Um, And the last thing which was interesting about this study, they estimate an infectious period between about four and seven days with the infectiousness peaking on the day of symptom onset and actually beginning just before symptom onset. Uh, Henry, any thoughts? Yeah. So these kinds of studies are fun because they allow us to think about the importance of systematic tracking, uh, but also to help us understand what's the natural history of an epidemic. Now, the challenge is that we're comparing different countries, different regions, all with different population densities, maybe different distribution of socioeconomic strata, different testing strategies. And so uh, we have to be careful about the absolute numbers. The trends, however, when you start to see the trends going down, you could start to identify, well, what are some of the factors that is it just natural burnout or was there something that they did that we can then apply in other settings and see if those interventions hold up? Yeah, certainly. I know in Italy, there were uh, a little later in the epidemic, actually penalties. So if you were, uh, the, the authorities would call your home and if you weren't there, you could get fined 500 euros. And so they were actually doing things to enforce adherence uh, more so than is the case here in the States and, and in some other countries. Um, John, do you have some comments? This makes it such a challenge, though, to do isolation because uh, patients, uh, the people don't have any symptoms. And I think that's a big reason for all of the spread that we've seen in the United States over the last month or two. Uh, I'm also going to comment on outdoor transmission, but I'm going to save that for a little bit later in our podcast. Yeah, this is the time when kids are returning to school. I'm a professor at the University of Georgia, and uh, the modeling folks, uh, there's a really good infectious disease modeling team at University of Georgia, and they estimate, and I did back-of-the-envelope calculations and came to the same conclusion that there are probably going to be between 200 and 1,000 actively infectious students at the time they return, and the modelers think it'll spread very rapidly. And, you know, we, we think... It's that asymptomatic transmission and the behavior off campus uh, that I think has everyone very concerned, particularly uh, at a large university. You can do things with a school of 500 or 1,000 perhaps, um, but it's going to be very difficult at some of these big state universities. All right, Henry, we're going to move on to face coverings. So controlling a a pandemic or an epidemic involves some strategies that frankly are more than a hundred years old, right? We learned about some of this during the global H1N1 uh, pandemic of 1918 that quarantining, hand washing, face uh, uh, masks, and um, contact tracing were really important to try to mitigate the spread. 
Unfortunately, uh, in our circumstances here in the U.S., these facial coverings have become lightning rods for different agendas. Some people have used these, especially bandanas and gaiters, as maybe a more comfortable or fashionable alternative to the ugly surgical masks. So these uh, researchers, I've blanking on where they came from, sorry. Uh, they used the same kind of fancy, sophisticated laser technology to look at the effectiveness of 14 different kinds of face coverings. They included some commercial uh, products, homemade masks. They looked at various materials, how many layers. They included bandanas, gaiters, and just a simple swath of mask material. And they also used an unmasked control. And the researchers kind of bragged a little bit because they had a, a setup that cost you less than $200 and using a smartphone video camera that they basically did all of the uh, recordings and analyzed the respiratory droplets and the flow patterns. So there were four different operators who would speak into this chamber and wearing the different contraptions. And the clear winner was the commercially made, specially fitted N95 mask that compared with the unmasked controls transmitted less than a tenth of a percent of the droplets. By the way, in uh, recent days, there, there, there's been a study in the media that showed that these N95 masks that are commonly used in construction that have the vents, those are not effective. The clear loser, turns out it was the gator type neck fleece that actually transmitted more droplets than the unmasked controls, 110%. And bandanas were only slightly better than controls. So they didn't, didn't necessarily evaluate really real-world performance, but we've got other empiric data showing that the various degrees of protection provided from various types of masks. So wear your masks, but you got to be comfortable. John? There was a, a really fine study done early in the pandemic by a group of researchers down in North Carolina in which they tested different do-it-yourself homemade masks, really well done these were all, for the most part, cotton-type masks, and they tested, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 different ones, ranging from single-ply cotton to four-ply cotton, and testing different weaves of cotton from very tightly woven cotton, like Egyptian cotton, to even batik-type material, which is very tightly woven. And they found there was a huge variability in the ability of the homemade masks to prevent the expulsion of droplets. So uh, if you're making the masks yourself, and many people are, and many of your patients are, please be sure to advise them that they need to take care and use tightly woven material and make sure that the fitting is reasonably good as well. And this study was from Duke. I looked that up, Henry. Oh, uh, so I you. wonder if it might even be the same group because they're also in North Carolina, obviously. Um, good. Well, let's move on. We've got a, a several more uh, poems to cover. And the next one is John talking about, as promised, outdoor transmission. Yes. Now, there's a caveat. This is outdoor transmission in China. And we'll talk about the U.S. after I finish presenting this study. This is a case series in which the investigators studied the likely transmission site for 7,324 of the roughly 10,000 confirmed cases of COVID that occurred outside the Hubei province in China 
way back in February of 2020. They collected descriptions of each confirmed case from the local municipal health department website and from 320 cities in mainland China. They identified clusters of three or more cases that were linked temporally to the same infection venue. So they, so they knew where these people got infected and they knew who they transmitted the virus to. So you have sort of infectee infectee pairs. Among the identified clusters, 54% had three cases, 26% had four cases, and only 2% involved 10 or more. Now, as expected, exposure at home was the most common cause of a cluster. That is, 80% of the cluster exposures were done at home, followed by transportation, uh, like trains, buses, etc. 34% had exposure on transportation, and you can see that adds up to more than 100% because some people were exposed in more than one venue. Many clusters had more than one exposure, in fact. However, there was only one outbreak involving only two cases for which only outdoor exposure was identified. So they concluded that COVID-19 transmission during outdoor exposure is rare in China. Now, uh, think about the pictures you see on television of Chinese people outside. What are they doing? They're wearing masks even outside. Are we doing that? I don't think so. Look at the pictures on the TV of the big parties, et cetera, that have been held outside, like the famous party at what, Torch Lake, Michigan, I think, or mm -hmm. just an incredible collection of boats and the Arkansas swimming pool party, you name it. So uh, I don't think this is super reassuring in the United States, unless you're outside and maintaining that six foot distance. Yeah, I think... You know, we tend to want to, you know, there's a certainly a certain amount of wishful thinking. And I think one part of that is, hey, if I'm outside, I'm safe. And I think we have to remember it has to do with distance, okay, duration of exposure, uh, the environment that you're in. Is it a closed space with poor air circulation? Is it an open space? So certainly being outside, all things being equal is probably better. But again, you still have to maintain that at a minimum, maintain that distance and if you're going to have a long duration exposure, like a few hours, consider adding a mask to that as well. And that's not going to be popular. I've tried to have a happy hour with some friends who wanted to make sure we wore a mask as well as we're seven or eight feet apart. Uh, and it's definitely less fun than the alternative. But uh, we got to do what we got to do for a while. Um, great. Henry, any comments on that one? Yeah, having a picnic or going out for a jog or a bike ride outside is not the same as packing 100,000 people into a soccer or football stadium. Unless you're in New Zealand, <laughs> where they've gone back to full-on rugby with full stadiums, um, and successfully, because they basically have had no transmissions. I think they had one case in the last week in the entire country. Well, actually, uh, they've they've had a little bit of a blip uh, here in the uh, last few days. So they had gone something like 100 days without any cases whatsoever. So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, one of my grad students, when he got a job as a postdoc, he's in... Uh, New Zealand now. And I, I just emailed him. I said, can I come visit? <laughs> great, great time to come visit. Although they wouldn't let us in. I'm sure they probably no, wouldn't no, let no. us in. They're not going to no. let us in anyway. No, no US citizens. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we got three more to cover. And uh, this is going to be our favorite topic of all of these. So we've written about 110 research briefs for the American Academy of Family Physicians. And we keep saying we're going to stop writing about hydroxychloroquine, but people keep doing good studies. And so we want to tell you about them. Um, the first one is, uh, and they, they each look at different populations. So I think it's important. And I think the focus, there has been a lot of 
hydroxychloroquine work, that the early stuff that was reported was very poorly done trials, or it was observational studies that didn't adjust for all of the potential confounders or had other important flaws. So our focus is on randomized controlled trials. This first one is from the UK recovery trial. That's a big study out of Oxford University and or University of Oxford, I guess they call it. They slap you in the face if you say the wrong way, if you're if you're there. Anyway, um, and they have six different arms. We'll talk about the dexamethasone arm later on. And this one they took, uh, they randomized patients. 1,561 were randomized to hydroxychloroquine. They got 800 milligrams uh, at zero and six hours, and then 400 every 12 hours for up to nine days. And then there were another 3,155 allocated to usual care. And anyone with a known prolonged QT interval was excluded. That makes sense. This was an open-label trial, so people knew what they were getting. That's a limitation. If anything, that usually biases in favor of the intervention because people are saying, hey, I'm getting the drug. That's good. And allocation was appropriately concealed, so the folks who were assessing the outcomes didn't know who got what. It was just the patients and doctors knew who got what. The mean age of patients was 65 years. 40% were female. Uh, 76% were on supplemental oxygen or assisted ventilation, and they were all hospitalized. Bottom line, there was no difference between groups with regards to 28 year mortality. Uh, usual care, 25%, a bit higher, 26.8% in the hydroxychloroquine group, but not statistically significant. On the other hand, patients in the HCQ group had a longer time to hospital discharge by three days, were less likely to be discharged alive within 20 days. Um, and the patients in the hydroxychloroquine group were also more likely to experience a combined outcome of mechanical ventilation or death. Number needed to harm was 30. So this is the largest study, best designed study that uh, hydroxychloroquine lacks efficacy and actually has potential harms in hospitalized patients with COVID-19. I think, uh, Henry, you're going to talk, we're going to talk about these all as a group. So Henry, you're up next. Yeah, so this is another study done in Brazil, another open-label study that took adults who were hospitalized with mild to moderate COVID, that means they didn't require supplemental oxygen, and they were randomized to receive standard care, standard care plus hydroxychloroquine, or standard care plus hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. Uh, the standard of care was really wild. It was they they threw everything but the kitchen sink at these patients: corticosteroids, antibiotics, antivirals, immunomodulators, anything that the team uh, could imagine. They then evaluated the patient's status after about fifteen days, and the main outcome was this seven-point scale of anywhere from being home without any impairment whatsoever to coma and death. And uh, I don't like these kinds of scales because the outcomes themselves don't really translate uh, the same in the same manner. But I know why they do it. It's to, basically to uh, reduce the number of patients that they need in the study. So they had roughly 500 individuals who had a positive PCR for COVID. And so in spite of the design elements that Mark has already alluded to, they were not able to find any improvements in the main outcome or in any single category of outcome. So for example, two-thirds of the patients in each group were no longer hospitalized and had no limitations. Only two patients died, both of whom had received the combination of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. Uh, 
about 15% of patients receiving hydroxychloroquine or hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin experienced these prolonged QT intervals compared with only 2% of those who received neither hydroxychloroquine nor azithromycin. So this was a negative study in a patient, a group of patients with mild disease. Okay, and the third one in our trifecta of hydroxychloroquine um, was a Spanish study. This was also a randomized trial. And what they wanted to find out was whether early treatment with hydroxychloroquine is beneficial. So they identified adults in Catalonia with a positive test for SARS-CoV-2 who were symptomatic but didn't require hospitalization, and they were all within five days of symptom onset. So the thinking is, okay, it didn't work in really sick people. It didn't work in moderately sick people. Does it work in people who aren't sick enough to even be in the hospital? And does it work if you give it early enough? Because that's the the proponents have kind of critiqued other studies. So this was also an open-label study, but they concealed allocation to groups, and lab workers were masked to treatment assignment, and patients were randomized to hydroxychloroquine, uh, as in the other studies, 800 on day one, and then 400 once daily, days two through seven, or usual care alone. There was absolutely no difference between groups at days three or seven in viral load. That's one of those surrogate disease-oriented endpoints. Also, no difference in hospitalization rates, deaths, or number of days to resolution of symptoms. Adverse events were more common in the treatment group much more common, but mostly uh, relatively minor stuff related to GI and uh, sedation and things like that. No serious adverse events attributed to the hydroxychloroquine, so that's good. Um, The dose was on the lower end, but that's because they were taking otherwise well outpatients and they uh, weren't able to rule out uh, underlying uh, cardiac disorders. Uh, So again, another negative trial. John, you've had to listen to us. Uh, Any thoughts? I think we're finally done with hydroxychloroquine. The FDA some time ago withdrew the emergency use of uh, hydroxychloroquine for COVID. So I think it's pretty well dead, but there will always be something else that comes along that takes its place. For example, I just read today in the newspaper about something called, I believe, oleandrin, which is a natural substance, which somebody is claiming is uh, great for COVID. And we still have this claim that inhaled steroids, inhaled corticosteroids uh, can help prevent COVID infection from a physician out of Texas. Now that second one is undergoing randomized trial. So we will see, but there will be a lot more things coming along that people tout as either prevention or treatment for COVID. Yeah, there was um, another trial, another negative, well-done randomized trial of post-exposure prophylaxis. Didn't work. Um, And uh, yeah, I think, and also what we're seeing is some of it's kind of crackpotty kind of stuff uh, that's being proposed, but then some of it's also by basic scientists or lab scientists who get super excited about something that in theory might do something good, and they haven't even tried it out in rats, and it's already getting press releases and news coverage. And um, you know, I think we have to be a little uh, sanguine about those. Henry, any final comments on this? I, I agree that I th- it, it, even though it's relatively cheap easy to administer. It is not necessarily benign. And all of the observational studies with a couple of exceptions that you pointed out have failed to show any um, benefit and have raised grave concerns about harm. And these subsequent randomized trials, even though they are relatively poor and limited, again, underscore that this is not effective and potentially harmful. 
good summary. And uh, I hope everyone has enjoyed today's discussion. We covered a lot of ground very quickly in uh, just under 30 minutes. And uh, we will be back next week with another primary care update and nine more of our favorite and what we think are the most important COVID-19 studies for you to know about. 